Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Welcome back to Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, you get to hear from me, Brett, and I have Doug. Hey, how's it going, everyone? (laughs) And Chris. What's up, guys? We're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, Well, not only am I the one doing a lot of the talking, which I apologize ahead of time, but we're going to talk a little bit about Vietnam, because I think there might be something on the horizon for us when it comes to Vietnam. Is is it Vietnam or is it Viet fucking Nam? (laughs) Viet fucking Nam. (laughs) It could be. It could be all those things. But uh, it's good to have you guys here. It feels like it's been a little while since we've recorded, but I know it hasn't. Maybe it's just because the anticipation of Adepticon's coming, so... I feel like uh, we haven't, I don't know, there's stuff going on. I don't know. Has it been that long since we've recorded? Adepta what? What? What are we doing? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's been enough to worry about coronavirus or Adepticon. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're all going to die. That's the big difference between the last time we recorded and now. It has not yet been canceled and we are going, you know, so... I think we're good. It may be three of us very sad Blood Red Skies players sitting around a coffee table with John Russell, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> I just saw Italy locked everybody down. So thank God we don't have very many Blood Red Skies players in Italy come to Adepticon. Yeah, I think we were simulating <laughs> the Italians leave in their Malta. Country. Oh, wait, damn it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can we put the Italians on lockdown in the Malta game and not fly them? <laughs> no, I painted too hard for you to do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you're out of school now officially, Chris, right? The, no, no, break. no. I wish. So I am in the six week stretch of my last freaking semester of college. Oh. So, yeah, you guys are going to be uh, freaking. Uh, trust me, I'm doing everything I can to get like everything done so that when I go to Adepticon, I can just put up blinders and just forget that I'm in college for freaking like four days. But it's it's been absolute insanity. No, I wish I was done. Yeah, I thought you were on spring break or something. Oh, I, I was on spring break last week, but last week was all about catching up for, unlike most college kids, you know what adult non-traditional students do with spring break? They fucking do work <laughs> <laughs> so they can get caught up because their brains are slow. Well, how is is there like threats of class shutdowns and stuff because of coronavirus? I had a professor class cancel class today because they had the sniffles. So yeah, we're, we're all expecting this to get like completely out of hand. Yeah. So, um, and the college kids will take full advantage. Trust me. I mean, my, my classes are going to be a ghost town from here on out. It's going to be, oh, I've got the um, corona flu and it's more the beer than it was <laughs> anything else. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, bad. I made the claim that I have the Rocket Republic Mach 1 IPA flu starting tomorrow. So Oh, nice. Can I, I want to I be confined you're drinking IPAs directly. now? Did Are you growing a man bun? Is I'm there more we bun. should know? Hey, hey, so, you know, <laughs> one of the trials and tribulations about living in a town full of microbreweries is I've got to try them all. So uh, Rocket Republic, yes, obviously here in Huntsville, Alabama, Rocket City, uh, they make a Mach 1 IPA, which isn't too hoppy. It isn't too IPA, you know, man bun wearing ish, but it certainly is no unfiltered beer uh, Allagash White, but hey, you know, it is what it is. All right. Well, yeah. we're, we're going to be enjoying some beer pretty soon when we all get together for this Adepticon trip. Let's let's roll right into this. So we normally start out with a quick Intel update. You guys see anything on, on uh, social media that's got your interest when it comes to Blood Red Skies? 
cricket, cricket, nothing from me. <laughs> of course, no. I, I will admit that uh, I have been uh, skimming the ready room a lot less uh, this week just because I've been busy with a lot of other uh, side projects that we're going to talk about here in a bit. Right. Okay. Well, I did see a thread that caught my interest about um, house rules, but uh, you know, I didn't see anything super noteworthy, but I just thought it was an interesting thread. Somebody posted up, Hey, just on ready room, just asking, Hey, what do you guys do for house rules? And so some interesting back and forth, what people typically do. I thought a lot of it kind of made sense, you know, basic sense. I, I think I chimed in there that when we were at coastal con, I mean, it's not a house rule per se, just maybe a different method to use the action deck, but uh, we use the open action deck method when we played a bunch of our games at uh, Coastal Con, and I thought that was pretty fun. It was the first time we'd played it that way, and, yeah. and I like. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the uh, open deck methodology now, and I, I did laugh that you immediately got stomped for uh, calling an optional rule a house rule. Uh, so that that was funny. We we have our own uh, uh, grammar police there uh, yeah, inside yeah. The, the ready room. I did make the... the uh, I don't know the caveat that it wasn't a house rule, but I was just trying to chime in because it was something yep, different. Yep, exactly. But, I think you I know I, there were some interesting ones there, um, but I think the the vast majority of the quote unquote house rules we saw was just people tweaking a little bit of the either the boom chip mechanics or deflection shooting or just some other things that we've all talked about that we're not quite sure if we like them. So maybe they're going to change the dodge mechanic a little bit, um, but. Nothing that was an earth-shattering house rule of we make everyone fly their airplanes upside down. Yeah, right. How about flight schedule, guys? Uh, anything upcoming? Do we have any events we're going to anytime soon? <laughs> Anyone heard of this thing called Adepticon we're supposed to be going to? Is that canceled yet? <laughs> canceled or not, you guys are still coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got to hang out with you, lucky we'll, us. And we'll just do it in the basement, man. John I got, Russell, I like please, please save us from this. <laughs> That's awesome. John That's Russell's kinda... still going to come. He'll be running around freaking Chicago in his freaking kilt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this may be something we don't need to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. Uh, this kind of rolls right into the hangar because I saw that you ordered a bunch of acrylic like measuring tools or something. Tell me about that, Doug, because I didn't know you were doing that. Yeah, so in the uh, effort for Lead Pursuit Podcast to never be short of useless swag, um, Basically, I've been working with Just Lasered and Mel over at Just Lasered is awesome to work with um, to, to be able to get some custom stuff cut up. Uh, and we have Lead Pursuit podcast templates, uh, movement templates uh, for uh, handing out there at uh, Adepticon. Uh, or also if people say, hey, we really want to have your branded template, sure, send me a message, whatever, we'll figure it out. Uh, but uh, it's a chance for us at least to have a little bit of swag for people that uh, come up, decide to hang out with us for more than the five minutes that it takes to explain the rules, uh, and then don't walk away going, who are those weirdos? Um, but yeah, picked up some of that. Uh, hopefully we'll also have some more airstrike markers. Uh, hopefully we will also have some really cool uh, three-dimensional, um, what do I want to call them, flak markers uh, from the team over at Litco. So once again, Litco is a, a huge supporter, and uh, they also are sending some acrylic our way for acrylic crackheads like me. Nice. You can't have enough acrylic, man. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. You no, no, you can't. There's, there's more and more acrylic I keep coming across every day. That was a big pile of it you posted. I think it was on our Lead Pursuit podcast Facebook page, and I was I didn't know that you were even doing that. That was sweet. Yeah, so I had the fun of sorting all those and putting them in individual bags so that we don't have to throw people just a stack of acrylic. Uh, but yeah, you know, I can't say enough good things about Mel. Um, he makes it really easy whether you're ordering uh, 
the the foam from him, and I've seen a couple different cool uh, iterations of his his foam work. Uh, and then ordering acrylic from him is also super easy. So, uh, if especially if you're in the UK, uh, please please uh, spend your money with Just Lasered. If you're in the US, we obviously have Litco here, uh, and they do a little bit different work, and they're obviously a little bit more commercialized. But they're also on Amazon, so you can get it just about anywhere. That's awesome. Well, since we last spoke, our mat that we worked on for a while for the Malta table got shipped to Chris's house. Chris sent us pictures. Tell me about it, Chris. You saw Dude, it first. Dude, it is sick. I, I opened that mat up and I rolled it out and I was just like, it, it fills up almost an entire ping pong table because it's a it's a four by eight, not just a not, not just a four by six. It is just beautiful. I mean, it, it, I'm like looking around at all the detail and it's like there's shadows from the freaking walls from the time of day it is. And I'm just, oh man, it, it is a beautiful map. It is one of the prettiest maps I've ever seen. I can't say enough good things about the work that Ivan, our artist, did on that. And obviously, sure, he took a lot from satellite imagery, but he also went back and added a lot of historical detail and removed some modern detail. Uh, Chris, did you did you sit out there and uh, try to find any of the uh, solar panels or any of the? I did find the one set of solar panels <laughs> you told me about. Yeah. So and, and I think we had to make that like a special target on some mission that it's like an RAF advanced freaking radar a base if or something. Can find it while they're standing so, around the mat in less than five minutes. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's kind of like a Where's Waldo? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> solar exactly. Panel. So so once again, huge shout out to Ivan. I mean, it's one of those things you're always going to find. Uh, little oversights there, but the fact that he made huge malls and uh, casino complexes go away and changed shorelines and, and did a lot of great work on it. All right, so he, you I'm guys really got to come to Adepticon and see this map firsthand. I mean, it is, it, it is one thing to see the pictures online, but when you put airplanes on that thing, it is just it's just crazy. It is It was the prettiest map. I thought the MIG Alley map that I got was the prettiest map I had ever seen, you know, little wisps of clouds and the valleys and the rivers. This this map just it just mind boggling. I can't wait to do a Stalingrad map with him and I can't cannot wait to do a Tulagi Savo and um and Guadalcanal map with him. I just think it's gonna be freaking absolute insanity. And when you're wondering why we're all broke, it's because we're paying Ivan and he's rolling in a big Mercedes there <laughs> from doing all of our artwork for us. Well, the pictures looked awesome. I can't wait to see it firsthand. I'm excited to see that. It's going to be great. That's the question great. is if you get it back. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Brett may never see the mat again. Well, I know where we can get another one. Exactly. We'll just call deep cuts again. That's right. Well, that's cool. Well, let's get on to our main topic. So, Well, do we, we want to say that? Can't you buy that mat through deep cuts and we get like a cut of the price? Well, so, so here's the easiest thing. Just PM us because I'll order another one. We've already had one guy who actually, ironically enough was involved in the original work with Ivan uh, to do just Valletta Harbor. So he did Valletta Harbor, uh, very small scale work. And then he saw what we did. He's like, holy crap, that's awesome. Uh, really like that. Um, so obviously we're not out here to line our pockets with you know everyone else's money, but we make it really easy because we've got the images. We can order it from Deep Cuts. We can get it shipped anywhere you need to. Um, and it's really super reasonable. So. Uh, short of being that commercial guy who throws a price out online, just PM us if you're interested. Or, likewise, if there's some other mat you go, hey, can we all collaborate and chip in and, and design a mat for Guadalcanal, just like uh, Chris said. Uh, let's talk about that, because absolutely we're all on board for, for making sure that everybody can benefit from the cool things that we've done. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for... Uh Thanks for making that available for people. I, I knew that you said you had a, somebody contacted you and already ordered one, and that's 
it's awesome that we're able to help people get their hands on it. That's cool. Well, let's get into our main topic. So I know in a previous episode, we talked about Vietnam being on the horizon. And Doug, you've been doing some playtesting and some, some, I guess, game design with a bunch of other folks on Vietnam. And uh, not, I don't want to make this a whole episode just about all that. What I was hoping to do is really just let's start a discussion about Vietnam because if this becomes something on the blood red skies horizon in form of, you know, some kind of, uh, supplement or something that comes out, some kind of box set, maybe akin to what we saw for uh, MIG Alley, that would be super exciting. I expect that would probably be super big in the U S market because, you know, it seems kind of iconic. Maybe, you know, when I think about, you know, building plastic models when I was a kid, you know, F4 was super cool. It was a big deal. And that's probably got to be like the poster child for the American air effort in Vietnam. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what we know about Vietnam in terms of the aircraft involved and stuff. I'm, I'm really kind of a lay person. I don't have a huge, you know, uh, knowledge historically of what happened in Vietnam, but maybe we could kind of put some stuff out there for our audience to describe maybe what, what we know and kind of dig well, into your expertise a little bit on that. One of the interesting things, and I know you guys know this, and, and so do most of the listeners, but Vietnam was a strange cross-generational air power kind of war. So you had everything from MiG-17s and and actually barely upgraded you know, MiG-17s that were fairly fresh off the production line, and F-100s, uh, F-104s, F-102s even made a debut in there as, as uh, bomber and tanker defense, uh, all the way up to F-4s uh, and, and more modern versions of them, and some really cool capabilities they had, MiG-21s, MiG-19s. So it's, it's, it's tough to say what is the Vietnam Air War about, or, or what are you simulating with the Vietnam Air War? Because quite frankly, most of the games I've seen are about simulating strike packages or simulating entire large air actions out there because on any given day you could have an F4 cap protecting F105 Thunder Chiefs going downrange but then the F4s were relieved by F8 Crusaders and and just dissimilar aircraft capabilities and they're being aggressed by a mixture of MiG-17s and MiG-21s um it's it's just it's at least for me, historically, it was fascinating to study um, and, and to go out and, and read all the different accounts, but also realize it was far more complex to turn into something resembling a game than simply pitting Battle of Britain 109 Echoes versus Spitfire Mark 1s, Mark 2s. So is it basically going to be like Korea on steroids? So I was going to say, I don't think any of us know. Um, and, I, and I say that coming fresh off of a conference call. Uh, with some of the other playtesters and, and people that are working to help Andy be at least provided a, a baseline of rules. I don't think any of us know what the the end product is going to look like. And that's okay. Because everybody on the team is doing their level best to make something that's fun. And it won't pass the grognar test. I, I will put that out there right now. There will be grognars that will pick it apart like they did Migali. But that's okay. <laughs> you can pick apart the the Blood Red Skies basic Battle of Britain box set about certain things. But the fact of the matter is everyone on the team wants to make it fun. 
we're just all going to spend our hours arguing with each other over what trait to give an F-4 versus a MiG-21 or, dare I say, do we assign any Soviet jets the vulnerable trait so that they blow up spectacularly? You know, things like that. So that that part of the game piece, to me, isn't as isn't as fascinating as the research into all the different kinds of aircraft that took part. And, and while there may be an impulse to release a set that is quote-unquote iconic Vietnam aircraft, maybe MiG-21 against F-4, all of a sudden that isn't that iconic and that fun of a battle. You really start to want to add all the other things in, which I think is good for Warlord as a company, but it's kind of frustrating for us that want to buy a one-off box set and suddenly jump into Vietnam uh, aerial wargaming. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the aircraft a little bit more before we get into uh, maybe some of the game design challenges and some of that stuff. What You mentioned some of them. Um, I made kind of a short list of aircraft that I'm generally aware of existed, at least in the theater. Things like F-100s. I, I think I understood that F-100s flew the most sorties of any aircraft in the Vietnam War. Is that which is kind of funny because the one place they really didn't end up very much after the start of Rolling Thunder was in North Vietnam. But they were an absolute workhorse in South Vietnam, close air support, forward air control, working a lot in Laos, all kinds of different areas for, for various uh, special operations missions. They were amazing. And, and you're absolutely right. I think I think their ordnance and, um, and sortie rate is just is off the charts. But it's really funny when you look at the the history as a fighter, and even though they shot down a MiG-17, possibly even three of them, uh, between them and the F-105s in the opening phases of Rolling Thunder, they rapidly got yanked out of North Vietnam, and they got rapidly, you know, pretty much restricted to being in the South, and and then kind of to add insult to injury, amongst the squadrons that were the top squadrons, it wasn't active duty F-100 squadrons, it was Air National Guard squadrons. Because that's really where their professional knowledge and their and their experienced, you know, Korea and World War II era pilots were that were just doing some amazing work uh, as a fighter bomber. But they are kind of, in a sense, if you look at at what we think of as Rolling Thunder, they're kind of denied the glory after um, they let a couple F one hundred fives get shot down on literally the first couple missions of Rolling Thunder. Wow. Well, with it with airstrike rules, I would think. Just Vietnam in general would be a treasure treasure trove of opportunity because so much of what I at least understand happened there was you know ground strike stuff anyway. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I can't think of Vietnam without thinking of F one hundred fives loaded with ordnance. Well, and that's one of the problems. So so I've been that probably good uh, person on the playtest team and have have bit my tongue and played all the fighter games, but. Really, what does Doug care about? I want F-105s ingressing over Thud Ridge. I Sure, okay, MiG-17s can pop up and we can do whatever we want with the F-4s or, or all that cool stuff. But I want, at the end of the day, my experience to be about Thuds carrying ordnance to the target. Um, I realize it probably isn't what everyone else cares about. You probably want F-4s shooting down MiG-21s. That's awesome. <laughs> we'll make sure that's fun. Uh, I, I promise that the, the rest of the playtest team cares about that. But there's already been some questions about how do we... How do we make sure that you get that iconic feeling for the the ground attack piece of it? Because whether it's just thuds going downtown with heavy ordnance, starting to go into some of the wild weasel missions, uh, iron hand missions, there's a, a huge trove of, of cool things you could do for Vietnam Air War. But I'll back up to Chris's point earlier. There's some amazing things you can do in Korea. And, and if I had my... My preference, um, while I love Vietnam-era aircraft, 
I really would rather see Warlord expound upon the Korean era because we know we're going to get two resin releases uh, for direct mail sales for the F9 Panther P80 Shooting Star. So we know we'll have those. Well, let's expand into the rest of the aircraft. Let's go ahead and, and let's throw the SPAD out there. I mean, it was a Vietnam or a Korea and Vietnam era aircraft, so let's put it out there. Let's let's explore some of the other aircraft that were in those ground attack roles and let's refine some of the airstrike, how it deals with jets and faster props and things like that. Um, and oh, by the way, we get B-29s. <laughs> so no longer does it have to be the lead pursuit playtest card. It can be an official one. Um, but, but you know, if, if I had my preference, that's where I'd see everything go. I could totally see the logic of refining the rule set and everything that um, you could potentially see in later uh, releases just by growing the... Uh, the MIG Alley stuff. I totally get that. Do you think yeah. there's a, a rush to get into Vietnam? Because Oh, there absolutely is. There, there always is. And I think anyone who saw when I was fishing for comments the other day on our uh, on our Facebook page, I was even surprised by the number of people that came back and said, absolutely, I can't wait to do Vietnam stuff. And the problem is my answer is I'm in no rush. And, and neither is anyone else. But understand that as soon as you dangle that out in front of Warlord and say, hey, we've got a whole other error we can do. Or it goes, like any business development person would, hey, that's dollar signs. That's <laughs> that's pounds sterling. That's <laughs> not euros anymore. Uh, but it's it's one of those things they look at and they go, absolutely, let's, let's do something new because that generally has a bigger push than an incremental add to something that's already out there. Um, just, just like the development and adding ME-262s, new World War II jets, is a is probably a bigger seller than just adding P-40s or P-47s as an individual aircraft type. Well, I have some more uh, game design and maybe development questions for you, but I have some more questions first about some potential aircraft. I know we talked about, you know, 100s and F-105s. You even mentioned F-104s and F-8s. I, I, tell me more about those. What's 104s and F-8s specifically? So the F-8 obviously did a lot of the early war fill in before F-4s became the ubiquitous Navy platform for mid-cap roles. And the F-8s did a very credible role. They called themselves the last gunfighter. They were out there using Zuni rockets. They were using AIM-9 Bravos. They had, obviously, their 20-millimeter cannons, and that's why they called themselves the last gunfighter. Um, and ironically enough, one of the interesting problems, as, as they didn't have the Vulcan... Uh, 20 millimeter uh, rotary cannon. They had individual, basically an evolution of the Hispano cannon, the same one that was used in World War II. Uh, they had problems with their the feed trays or the, or the feed mechanisms for the 20 millimeter rounds under G. So they were a very capable fighter. The problem was probably about 50% of the time their pilots went trigger down and the weapons jammed. So while they had this amazing multiple 20 millimeter forward firepower, it was not reliable like a lot of other things in the Vietnam War. But they also had, you know, heat-seeking missiles. Um, they also fielded the bullpup missile, so they were able to do uh, precision uh, missile strike. They uh, they really were kind of one of the, at least in, in Doug's opinion, one of the unsung heroes of the jack-of-all-trades kind of aircraft that normally you think of a lot of other airframes, maybe think of the A-4 being that way. Um, but the fact is the F-8 really did the fighter and the attack missions, and... Um, you know, kind of, you know, close to, close to, you know, 
Chris is in my wheelhouse, uh, the missions done by the Marine squadrons, either flying off the carrier or the Marine squadrons that deployed down to uh, Da Nang and Chulai, uh, they did some amazing ground attack work. And I think we've all seen the photo of the uh, of uh, during, um, and I'm drawing a total blank on the uh, on the battle, but the F-8 Crusader coming in, dropping snake eyes at about 50 feet. I mean, he's level with the cameraman. Uh, as he's there and it's so it's impressive to see yeah i watched that the other night it was like pre-tet and i'm trying to think of which battle it was so i want to say it was like 67 but by the way all this vietnam talk if you guys want to get up to speed on vietnam for our listeners and you have netflix netflix has a documentary that is like 18 hours long and it is some i i was raised see, by a vietnam while you're veteran. in coronavirus isolation you absolutely can watch the I, I was raised by a vietnam veteran and raised and i thought i knew everything about vietnam i started watching this series i'm about seven episodes into it now i have learned so damn much about that war that i didn't know not that reading a book isn't a great thing but I don't have a lot of time to read books right now, and I have a lot of time to have documentaries going when I'm doing other things in the background, and it's been I'm so busy taking great. photos, I can't read. I have to watch Netflix. Dude, I wish I was just taking photos. You can come up here, and you can take my PR freaking thing. We just had freaking 40 <laughs> That's pages. That's why you're in college. I'm not. We just had 40 pages of primary and secondary research returned to us and told us to rewrite it. I'm, I'm just done. I'm just done with college. As I'm about, I'm three days away from meeting my master's advisor for doing my master's degree. But anyway, so Back to Viet fucking Nam. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I'll say I thought I knew a lot about Vietnam aerial history. I, I didn't think of myself by any stretch as the expert, but I knew a lot about the history of the airborne forward air controllers uh, from when I was out as an instructor uh, in the Marine Corps at Mots 1 teaching forward air control. Uh, and I thought I also knew a lot from the fighter side, hearing all the Top Gun F-4 stories and, and all those things. And the problem is you get out there and you start reading and you realize that, you know, and that's why I described it as a cross-generational thing. I mean, there's F-8 Crusaders out there supporting thuds that are guys getting shot down, getting rescued with A-1s and, and HH-3 helicopters. Just an amazing variety of, of uh, aircraft platforms out there. Well, that's an interesting thing. You mentioned some of the helicopters. That's you – do you think of Vietnam as being – certainly helicopters were big-time use there. Any real relevance, you think, for – Blood red skies with the use of helicopters. I hate biplanes. I hate helicopters just as much. Right. Okay. <laughs> so all, all my all my marine helicopter buddies are now up in arms. Yeah, I'm, I'm grinding a knife right now. I'm just sharpening <laughs> it. <in. laughs> I hate helicopter pilots. All of you, except when you pick me up or you bring me chow. Yeah. Then you're how, my many, pilots. how many troops do you take into combat to freaking put the flag yeah, down? <laughs> exactly. So, but but once again, that you think that jets that that F fours and other things open a can of worms trying to add helicopters in and what you what would you add helicopters for is is those are levels of play test that thankfully almost nobody has asked about because i mean we're we're at each other's throats in a lot of ways over the tweaks of individual aircraft traits and i don't say that throwing spears at anyone on the team it's just funny because even tonight there was a point where people were putting their heads in their hands and going i i don't know how we're going to get there from here because i just don't like the way we're doing it so um it's it's a continual process it's it's nice to do rules by committee in some ways uh because at least you really get a, a diversity of opinions but there's times that that there's always one dissenter that goes 
y'all are going down the wrong road. You're going to screw it up for everyone. <laughs> yeah, helicopters has got to be almost a different completely game. When you think about it in a scale that you're talking about, it's not bolt action scale. It's not Blood Red Sky scale. It would have to be something in between. You would you, right. you would almost Absolutely. have to – it would almost have to be like epic infantry. You know what I'm saying? That well, kind of scale it's like where you're dropping seas teams off. I mean cool yeah, seas exactly. is fun. But you're not going to take your patrol boats out and fight a war at sea battle with them. So you, it's just you're not going to put your helicopters into blood red skies, and they're too big for bolt action. So when I was thinking about them, I was, I was it was reminding me of some of the thoughts we had about potentially using seaplanes to have some effect on a future game. You know, if you could, you know, almost like some kind of rescue thing. Uh, you know, maybe there's something like that, but but not a, I guess a regular part of the of the game like you would otherwise use your you know your your migs or your your spitfires or whatever in a typical blood red skies game yeah there's always something cool scenario based that you can do i think just the difficulty from the the play test side of it is do you write something as a special rule that you use one off in a scenario or do you make it part of the the core rules and right now at least where most everybody i think is on the team uh there's so much argument about Getting a, getting an F4, a MiG-17, and a MiG-21 to feel right and to not only feel right but pass the sniff test for both the grognard and the amateur historian who – or I shouldn't even say the amateur historian. As as one of our team refers to it, the man on the street. Uh, <laughs> so so making it fun for everybody, but um, it, it just may be a bridge too far other than something cool in, in a one-off mission, kind of like the recce missions. Sure, sure. Well, let, let's put a bow on some of this talk about potential aircraft. There's no way we're going to – likely capture every single potential airframe that flew in Vietnam. But uh, I had some notes here. How about, uh, as I understand it, B-57s and F-100s were some of the first uh, units to deploy to Vietnam. Anything? They were, and, and ironically, they were also some of, some of the last, um, because both were used both in the attack role conventionally and a lot in the special operations role. Uh, and sure, some of the B-57 functions fell to other aircraft later in the war as more specialized um, targeting, reconnaissance, bombing, whatever you want to say, aircraft came out there. But uh, those are airframes that continue to soldier on, specifically flying out of Thailand for years after most Americans thought they'd been sundowned. I wasn't super familiar with the B-57, but when you look at it, it's a pre- I think it's a pretty cool-looking aircraft. It's sort of, to me, when I see it, it's sort of that weird in-between uh early jets to this, you know, to the more modern jet. It's like the weird trend. I don't know a whole lot about the B-57, but I look at it, it's sort of, it's almost kind of has this Art Nouveau look to it. I don't know. Well, I was going to say it has that European, as I'll call it, spaceman spiff kind of, you know, future sci-fi look to it. Yeah, Uh, yeah. It it really... uh, Buck Rogers look to it. Yeah, exactly. It's (laughs) it's the Buck Rogers kind of bomber, like the meteor was the Buck Rogers fighter. That uh, And in in both, they're very similar lineages in in how they kind of dead-ended technology-wise, but they were, you know, fascinating aircraft that are still out there, you know, flying today, which is hilarious because most people may or may not know that the follow-on versions of that airframe are still out there flying atmospheric tests, things like that, um, as as they don't even look hardly like a B-57 anymore, but they, it's a, it's a very capable high altitude airframe. Well, let's, um, I know, uh, things like, um, missiles and stuff we're going to get into more and SAM missiles. I want to talk about all those things, but because of the prevalence of surface to air missiles in Vietnam, 
I think that was kind of the beginning of when we started seeing those wild weasel missions actually start to become a thing. Were there any dedicated aircraft for just doing that in Vietnam? Well, absolutely. And so it was a fascinating, uh, you know, step up or, or tiered response, I guess is the best way to say it, as people understood, okay, we need to target SAM sites. So we need to target AAA sites in concert with SAM sites. So those anti-aircraft artillery, as well as the surface-to-air missiles need to be taken down. And and the thought process of how that happens, because when you look at the loss ratios of the early wild weasels, it's just huge. Um, and you look at the technology they were given, and then obviously incrementally went through a lot of different aircraft, went from F-100s, F-105s, um, later on at the very end, and then in, obviously into the Gulf War, there's you know F-4 configured wild weasels, now into F-16s. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different aircraft that did the role with a lot of different tools. And I think at least to me as the as the amateur historian digging into the Vietnam stories, what's fascinating is how many different weapon systems we tried and, and what the what the responses from the North Vietnamese side were to these weapon systems, but more importantly, how often it really came down to somebody having the intestinal fortitude to put a weapon onto a a, a surface to air missile or any aircraft artillery site in the teeth of just amazing amounts of anti-aircraft fire coming up, um, which which is amazing whether it's a Navy Iron Hand mission or an Air Force Wild Weasel. Uh, some of those missions were just, you, you look at the, or you read the stories and you go, you had to be crazy to roll in and drop, you know, unguided ordnance on these, these sites. So we talked a lot about the Blue Fort. Let's talk a little bit about the bad guys. MiG-17s, MiG-21s, you think that's sort of the main uh, aircraft we'd see Absolutely. there? Absolutely. So so the the really, the big piece, unfortunately, is two aircraft that are the the bookends of capability there. The MiG-17, non-supersonic, amazingly maneuverable, gun-equipped, uh, basically the super 1950s fighter, and the MiG-21, the opposite end of the spectrum, as you know, we've all bandied around what term do you use for it, it really was a point defense fighter. It, it was not a, people sometimes call it an interceptor. It didn't have enough gas to be a long range interceptor as a lot of the, the Russian interceptors were. Um, and we can talk for years about all the different ones that nobody knows about. Uh, but the, the MiG-21, that aircraft was, was such a technological leap ahead but the, the problem is you sit there and you talk about um, putting them into blood red skies or even just learning about them and studying them. They're, they're two very different airframes that came from a common thought process. And throughout my time in the Marine Corps, as, as we'd study the MiGs and study the evolution of, of MiG hardware, we used to joke, and, and it was very true, that it had to be both flown and maintained by Ivan the Potato Farmer. And Ivan, who makes all of our, our uh, maps, we love you. We're not picking on you. In but Soviet to, Russia, plane yeah, fly you. <laughs> exactly. But the fact is it had to be maintained very easily, and everything had to be in the same spot. So if you sit in a MiG-17 cockpit, and you sit in a MiG-21 cockpit, and you sit in a MiG-29 cockpit, it all feels familiar. It's all in the same place. It's not like going from an F-4 to an F-18 or an F-8 to an F-4 where suddenly the levers are different, the knobs are different, the switches are in different spots. It's not. It's based so that someone can take a logical step from a previous aircraft to a new aircraft and then have add-on capabilities. Now, it obviously had huge limitations. You look at the MiG-21, 
and you've literally tried to put 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. I've put a huge engine, hardly any fuel, bolt-on weapons platforms, a bolt-on gun initially, um, radars, gun sights, all this stuff. So the poor pilot there, he's the last concern. At least we gave him an ejection seat. <laughs> Lucky you, Comrade Stalin thought enough of you to give you that. But it's it's um, it's not designed for them to be very effective in employing. And in fact, a little bit of a teaser, hopefully you'll see that in the traits of the aircraft that, that come out for the F-4 and for the MiG-21, that these aren't a dogfighter's aircraft. They're much more of a systems aircraft. And oh, by the way, those are systems built by non-pilots, and they're difficult to use, and they're they're confusing. That they're they're not um, they're not intuitive, like just flying an aircraft by the seat of your pants and pulling the trigger with a with a gun sight. So I, I'm in no way privy to the you know play testing. I mean, we've play tested a few uh, ideas, but as far as like, I'm not involved in any way with like the design or concepts, what kind of thing. But I'm, I'm thinking if, if, if a box set was to come out for Vietnam, I would automatically assume it's probably some F4s and some MiG-21s. My vote would be for a bunch of F-105s and maybe a couple of F4s, you know, maybe fly together. But hey, that's just my vote. But um, I would think clearly that four has got to be like the poster child for any representation of the and, U.S. And, force, right? And once again, also because it has so much replayability. So you think about an F-4 model, and if you make it somewhat generic, as a lot of our Blood Red Skies models kind of are, you really can cover the gamut of everything from a F-4B in Navy service to a C or a D in Air Force service, and you know maybe even an E if you sculpt the, uh, the, the gun nose underneath it, um, even up to a J for the Navy. So there's, there's a lot of playability you get out of one model, much like we have with the Spitfires, 109s, things like that. Yeah, you'd have something for every hobbyist, right? Because you could do you all would. the services. You and... can cut the you can cut the Erst off and put a you know IFF scanner on there and make it a different model of the F four. There's there's a lot you can do for the hobbyist there, and I think that's a good thing. And to be honest, that's one of the big reasons the F four will be there. Um, the tough part becomes when you look at that box set and you say, "Do I have to choose between the MiG seventeen and the MiG twenty one? Do I do I have to have a you know, a, a two versus two box set. Can I have a two versus four? Can I put two MiG-21s and two MiG-17s? Because let's be honest, the, the North Vietnamese Air Force flew combinations of MiG-21s and 17s. They, they weren't a one or the other exclusive kind of thing. They were intended to be used together. So it's it's kind of funny. We've argued about it a couple times in the in the play test. We're like, we know we don't control what, what Warlord chooses to do for the box set. But I think all of us would rather see instead of a MIG alley style box set, we're like, please, can we have a Vietnam starter set? And can there be resin one Oh fives? I think we're all in agreement about that. Yay. That's awesome. That's good. Yeah. News. I don't think it's going to happen though. <laughs> let's, let's me just talk economics unless, and, and I will say this in hundred percent honesty, if all of you Vietnam aficionados out there absolutely swamp the blood red skies ready room and you absolutely say, we want it as a box set. We will spend the money as a box set. Then it will happen. The problem is when it's a couple playtesters convincing Andy and then Andy convincing Warlord, it's tough to make a business case. But I think almost all of us that are out there that are serious about playing the Vietnam era, we want all of those things. 
That's cool. I could see maybe for some barrier to entry on cost, you know, you want a maybe inexpensive box set. But uh, well, and and here's the other option. So to to be perfectly transparent with the the Blood Red Skies community, the other option you have, and and once again, make your feelings known. Put comments out there uh, in the in the ready room and on our Facebook page, and and Andy will see them, and so will Warlord, because because they see what everyone posts in Instagram and Facebook, and and they take it on board. But if if resin direct sale is the answer, then maybe just say, hey, Warlord, we want at the rollout to have three or four different aircraft options and give us a PDF of the rules. And if everyone's fine with that, if everyone doesn't need brand new cards and, and things like that and is happy with PDF rules, let's not fool ourselves. Warlord would be perfectly happy to not have to put things in a box with cover art with more cards and and just roll out the models. Uh, but I think the fact is the, the community needs to say what they really want out of it. And I'll be quite honest, um, cards are cool. Uh, getting them in a, in a box that says MIG Alley on it is also cool. But I would rather have the diversity of, of Vietnam platforms and some stuff that I got to print off on my own, I think, to, to at least get into it. And then, then if the, the interest is there, Warlord can always come out and release a Vietnam expansion pack that has all the cards uh, and everything already pre-printed for you. Oh, good point. And they've done they've done what you've suggested well with both Airstrike and um, the PDF of um, yeah uh, Sand, of Sandstorm. Sandstorm exactly. All, and yeah. and so we might see some of those cards that are in a PDF. They might be released in a you know kind of like Dust is done with the 2016 updates. You know there there could always be a um, you know, European theater card pack update that Warlord decides to put out because there's so much feedback. What, And I can't say this enough um, because a lot of discussion goes on in the ready room and a lot of banter goes on. But the one thing that Warlord doesn't really get from the community right now is rudder steer about things people want to put in their hands. I mean, other than models, people are very good about saying, I want to see a model of Airplane X. But when it comes down to cards and things like that, Warlord does tend to turn around and give Andy a little bit of the teeth suck because they don't know if a if a big box of cards is going to sell. Um, and so they obviously don't want to spend the money for that. Gotcha. Well, assuming the F4 is the U.S. poster child for a Vietnam set of some kind, what kind of things do you guys have to kick around to make that a reality? Is there like you know, you already talked about several different variants. I'm guessing that means potentially multiple cars. I mean, what kind of things are you thinking about or, or are possibly going on? Well, I'll tell you the, the two biggest things that the sound you hear is not someone knocking at the door. It's my head beating against the desk is determining what does the jet card do? Do we create a third generation of jets? Do we create a trait to simulate the real advent of afterburners? Um, I know we played with a couple different uh, afterburner-style trait cards and things when, when you and I playtested, Brett. But the, the question becomes, what, what do you do to add some of the flavor of this next generation of airplanes and not make it too complex and not, and not make it so that you're flipping rules and reading cards and, and tracking things that, that you wouldn't normally track in a Blood Red Skies game? Because Andy's been very good turning back around to the playtest team every time we, we tee up a question to him and saying, hey, guys, we don't do bookkeeping in Blood Red Skies. We, we don't do witty little card mechanics. We have traits. We have boom chits. We have high cover and zoom chits. Uh, you know, we, we don't 
do um, we, we don't really get into some of the nitty gritty. So that is that's great guidance, but it also is sometimes a little frustrating because you know a number of us on the team even tonight sat there and go. I really want to do bookkeeping. I really want to make somebody pay a penalty for making this tactical decision, and I can't do that without bookkeeping. So it's a constraint that we have to deal with, uh, and I know that Chris is probably having flashbacks to constraints and restraints and which one do you have to do, which one can you not do. Yeah, you remember all those Marine Corps planning oh, processes, yes, I do. right, Chris? <laughs> but, but to That's be honest, when I walked out of the room and let you point and hit guys from the academy, sort things out. Oh, oh thanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I learned any of that there. Um, but that's one of the things that we've had to look at uh, as the playtest team is, you know, what are the things that Andy says we just can't do? And what are the things that Andy says we absolutely have to do and, and build something that we can tee up to him? Because to be honest, uh, we all laughed about it tonight. The rules for, for Vietnam might roll out and none of us might recognize it. We might all look around from the playtest team and go, did you suggest that? I didn't suggest that. Where'd that come from? And it came from Andy because it's his game. He, he can do that. <laughs> That's right. So, so we have to be ready to deal with that. Well, I really enjoyed the things we play tested. You mentioned afterburners. We're going to get into missiles in a little bit because that's an obvious discussion if we're talking about Vietnam. Uh, I like the things that we play tested, and if my feedback is in any way relevant, I would say that it was it was familiar to what I already know about the you know from the basic Blood Red Skies starter set, but different enough to make me feel like I was doing something. I don't want to say more advanced, but it, reflecting more modern aircraft and more modern, you know aircraft fighting, right? Because of these new capabilities. I appreciated it and it didn't feel overly cumbersome. Like I said, it was familiar. We were doing some extra steps. We were using our cards like we might've otherwise. It seemed uh, appropriate and logical to me. So I really liked it. I thought what we, what we play tested, the methods of, you know, using the cards and stuff to do those things and the boom chits and stuff, that was all super fun for me. And I I can't wait to get to do some more of it. Um, We talked about the F4. Are we going to say the MiG-21 is the poster child for the bad guys? That's the tough thing. I mean, it, it iconically it is. Uh, the, the tough part becomes as soon as you ask any grognard or self-appointed historian, they're going to tell you that they used the MiG-21s and the 17s in concert, and the 21 was such a, a slash attack, show up, shoot, run away kind of person. One of the, the discussions we had probably a month ago on one of the conference calls was that we just kind of laughed as we read the accounts. We're like, flying a MiG-21 in Blood Red Skies really isn't going to be that much fun. You're going to intentionally boom shit yourself out because you're going to shoot at guys, run away, you know, and, and not and not stick around and fight the fight because that's what the MiG-17s were for. So it's it's just tough. And, and I hate to, as I told the guys uh, tonight, told the crew, don't want to be the negative Nelly, but there's a point where you throw up your hands and you go, I can't make this symmetrical. I can't make this fit two airplanes because they're both so different. <laughs> All right. That's cool. It sounds like you guys have a lot of challenges. So um, speaking about, well, it reminds me of something Andy said to us in an episode he did with us. He was talking about the challenges of, I think the word he uses is, is compression. You know, you're compressing the capabilities and stuff of the different aircraft into these stats that, you know, it's a pretty, pretty small number set that we're working with to represent, you know, potentially pretty big deltas in, in capability, whether it's turn rate or firepower or whatever. Now, man, I think you start getting into jets and it, that, that compression is even more noticeable, right? So clearly you must be dealing with a lot of compression issues as you're trying to suggest, 
Yeah, it's it's like we had the compression issues card played on us. <laughs> no, there there absolutely are, and and it's one of the difficulties of trying to extrapolate across such a long historical window, because the question you have to ask yourself as as we all lost our minds on each other about what does a twenty millimeter rotary cannon shooting armor piercing incendiary rounds, what firepower value is that? Because is it the round that is making it so so important or so damaging to the aircraft? Because certainly it's hitting the aircraft and detonating oxygen bottles, fuel lines, unsealed fuel tanks, things like that. Is it the airplane being vulnerable? Is it the, the rate of fire out of the cannon? Would it be the same effect if it was shooting just basic lead bullets? Um, it's You run into this, this problem of cramming technology into a small stat line, um, and then you open up the can of worms by saying, well, maybe we just make equipment cards. But then how do you make equipment cards only apply to specific aircraft? Because Andy's done a great job, as, especially as you saw with the latest series of airstrike cards, making them apply to everybody. If you want to drop a glide bomb off of your uh, 1941 Blenheim, <laughs> feel free. Uh, we'll have years that restrict the use of these things, but you you we're not going to say certain platforms can't do it. And so it's kind of the same way. That is, you start going from different kinds of weapon systems, you almost have to re-baseline what does firepower one mean? Or what does agility one mean? Uh, because pure physics, we all know that some of these prop planes, they will turn well inside of some of these jets. But the problem is, I can't make the jets agility zero. That's not any fun. Yeah, we were talking about compression and some of the challenges of just fitting all this the capabilities of jets themselves into the game. Now we haven't even talked about missiles and clearly you guys got to be, that's got to be a big part of what's working going on behind the scenes, right? Absolutely. Um, and what I will say, because people have probably heard me say things like it's, it's not that difficult to add infrared missiles to blood red skies or, Hey, I think blood red skies could move into the Taiwan Straits, Indo-Pak kind of warfare era. Sure. Shooting a dogfight missile from half a mile behind somebody is not hard to fit into Blood Red Skies. But you start trying to fit beyond visual range missiles as as were used at the very opening stages of the war or even were attempted to use during Operation Bolo when the F-4s tried to go up there and, and be weapons free as they were ambushing the MiGs. Uh, all those things you start really running up against the desire to keep Blood Red Skies as a beer and pretzels game. I don't really want to take a look at what aspect or what what you know arc of the the fighter I'm shooting at. I don't want to change my range based on whether I'm shooting at his forward arc or at his rear arc. But at some point, those are the kind of things that that model or simulate missiles accurately. So missiles have been a huge argument, and I'll be the first to say that. A month ago, or a little bit less than a month ago, I threw up my hands and said, guys, I don't know the answer. Um, I, I, I thought I knew the answer when we started the discussion. I am less convinced than I do. Missiles are going to be very difficult. And there's been some cool creative solutions. Andy's throwing a couple our way. Uh, Rosalind, who obviously did uh, Jet Age Edition, uh, her addition to, uh, to Blood Red Skies, had some input. There's been some, in some interesting ways we've thought about making missiles feel different than just shooting a long-range gun. But at the, pro at the at the end of the day, there's there's problems just 
making it satisfy the the enthusiast and the grognard both uh, out there at the same time. I, I don't know all the different iterations you must have gone through for this, but I know what we play tested felt fun to me. Um, was that probably a pretty it, it simplified it, version? It's a. It was a. Um, no, it was the most. What do I want to say? Probably the most stable version of the playtest that we had is what uh, what we used. And so that everybody understands, we were out there and we really were simulating infrared dogfight missiles. So it was, I tell people uh, as we talked through the playtesting of it, it was pretty funny. Things worked out kind of Vietnam-ish that uh, several infrared missiles were shot, none of which hit. And then finally one connected with a MiG-17 right about the time that MiG-17's wingman shot down the F-4 that was shooting it. <laughs> <laughs> so so there were, there were some good playtest moments like that. But the other thing that people have to realize is this is a beer and pretzels game. So you're going to end up moments like I think we had. I think you had three or four of almost, I think it was almost all of your F4s at one point took an infrared missile shot on one poor big 17. Probably not exactly what you were going to see in Vietnam, but it still made sense. It, it Within the rules, it was okay. We get what we're trying to simulate here. It's not a, it's not a perfect 100% representation of the war. Right. It. I think I mentioned this earlier. It felt like a uh, logical next step for the rule set that and card mechanics that I'm already accustomed to. So it was similar enough, but additional enough to seem appropriate, at least from my perspective as a novice in this whole, you know, thing. So I thought it was pretty fun. Well, what, and I use the example of the community's response to deflection shooting, and to do we need a critical success? Or even to the dodge mechanic and what happens if if I get a critical dodge, can I take away the boom chit and some of the house rules that are there? I think some of those things, same things are going to come up as people with more historical knowledge play some of the rules in whatever form that gets released. And they may say, you know what, our house rule is only one guy can shoot a missile at one target or you can't shoot if there's a friendly aircraft between you and the target or, or things like that. And that, and that's fine because once again, blood red skies isn't built to be that perfect simulation. If people want to house rule things to make it either more complex or more realistic in their view, that's fine. Knock yourselves out. No one's going to come take your models away. Um, the intent is to just give a, a baseline where people can go out and have fun and feel like they're actually flying uh, F4s versus MiG-21s and MiG-17s. Well, we've been talking a ton about air-to-air missiles, but certainly surface-to-air missiles if were a huge deal in Vietnam, if not the big debut for that oh, yeah. in modern warfare. what uh, is, is that a part of what you guys are thinking about behind the scenes? I forced them to kick it to the shelf. No. So I, I only say that because I had a meltdown about Sam's the other day. Uh, we want to get those right. We don't know how it's going to be. Uh, let me be honest and say it may be as simple as a boom chit mechanic where you start off with a couple boom chits awarded against you because you've had Sam shot at you. It may be as well modeled as Sam shots in the middle of the game, like airstrike has flak shots, but knowing that the goal is to dip our toes in the waters of, of Vietnam missions probably won't be the most complex uh, of those answers. It probably will be something simple or it may just not even be in there. And once again, Remember, we all flew 
Blood Red Skies missions for quite a while with a card for heavy flak presence before right. we could actually submit or simulate uh, flak on the table. So I think people should should take a step back and go, okay, it's more important that I can fly F4s and MiGs than that I perfectly model SAMs or or radar-guided AAA, things like that. No, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that because, you know, in light of, you know, we're diving into airstrike and how we're, you know, wrapping our minds around flak barrages and all that stuff, I just kind of automatically was thinking, oh, man, SA-2s must have, there must be some kind of mechanic like that. How are we going to do that? But like you said, could just be a card, right? No big deal. Well, and so perfect world. We would love to have all that laid flat before even the first part of Vietnam-era stuff debuted. It's just not going to happen that way. We know that. Um, even though we have a, a fairly good timeline, because if something is done with Vietnam, it will probably be 2021 before that uh, actually rolls out. People might see it around late 2020 in some of the playtest versions. But the the fact of the matter is, it's still a long way off, and, and I think it's just a little bit of expectation management. The the playtest crew really wants to provide Andy with the best baseline that he can take his game designer's direction off of. And he can he can really run with it, and then at some point, several months later, it actually comes out in a in a hard printed copy that people can can play and can enjoy, and that we can build off of later. And if we have to revise and tweak some rules a little bit, like we've we've done uh, going into airstrike, then that's fine. Um, but the intent is to is is that we know we can't roll it all out in the first release. Well, look, it's clear that you and the guys on the team are spending a lot of time you're trying to figure out how to best do all these things. So I don't mean to, uh, you know, put the cart before the horse, but as you're, you're thinking about Vietnam, do you personally have any, I don't know, thoughts about noteworthy historical missions that you're aware of that you want to one day see represented on a table? My problem is there's about a million of them. So Vietnam aerial history has, has, always fascinated me even though like I said I thought I knew so much about it that I really dug into it and there's even more for me it, the adding Vietnam aircraft and that era isn't so much because I want to see a specific Vietnam battle although I'd love to replay Operation Bolo and have F4s and MiG-21s uh, nose to nose but it's because it's a gateway to all the other historical eras because now if I have MiG-17s, MiG-21s, and F-4s, I can do Arab-Israeli wars. Oh, that's have MiG-17s that's awesome. and infrared missiles, I can do Taiwan Straits. And I'm not proxying a MiG-15 as a MiG-17 and, and making some, some made-up rule about how I want an AIM-9 Bravo to work. I've got an AIM-9 Bravo rule, and I can fly F-86Fs for uh, Republic of China Air Force. So uh, to me, that's, that's the fascinating part. Now, that's always a slippery slope because that's even more aircraft that have to have cards statted out for them. You end up kind of in the world that we're in right now where uh, the Italians weren't going to get released by Warlord this year. So we kind of stepped in, helped Andy out, released some cards out there. The situation only gets worse when you start opening up the other theaters. But to me, that's that's the cool part is now I can start talking about Mirages. I can start talking about a lot of other aircraft out there, Nats uh, in the Indo-Pak theater, all, all kinds of other things. But, oh, my gosh, that's a lot more playtest work and statting work. And, and really, at the end of the day, it, it, to me, just requires patience from the community. It requires the community to go, you know what? This is a community-driven game. This isn't the kind of game that's going to roll out and say, here is version 1.0. Here is version 2.0. We're going to put some rules out from us as the playtesters up to Andy. He's going to decide what he likes. 
Um, and at the end of the day, the community is kind of going to take a hack on the other 60% that surrounds that of the uh, other aircraft, other rules and cool things to do. Well, how, how about uh, any potential for special theater or doctrine cards for Vietnam? Was there, were there any like weather conditions? I mean, I know we talked about surface to air missiles. That's got some potential. Obviously. Absolutely. So, so there's, there's obviously uh, doctrine and theater cards for some of those systems uh, we've batted around some for the other theaters, for Arab-Israeli wars, uh, for Indo-Pak, for Taiwan Straits, some, some other interesting things that happen that you might want to simulate as a theater or doctrine card. Uh, one of the, the ones that has really come up the most, and without giving too much away, uh, we've had to look at a theater or doctrine card to make the MiG-21s effective. Because if you have to fly a MiG-21 in kind of scenario one dogfight and you're toe-to-toe with an F-4, that's not how the MiG-21s flew. So we've had to step back and say, how how do I give them a doctrine card? Or how do I give them a theater card that simulates how they flew in a specific time window that gives them a moment of advantage against the F-4s, but isn't so catastrophic to the F-4s that the F-4s just get shot down? Um, and if you want to talk about something that involves drinking a lot of beer and, and scribbling stuff on little cards, that is one of those kind of things where you say, I, I, I want to balance it so it's fun, but it's not that just I, I've now given the advantage to the, the player that has that card. I don't, I don't really know much at all about any specific engagements. I generally understand the MiG-21 to be super capable at very low speeds in a, you know, a turning fight. But did that, kind of thing, did that kind of fight ever happen with MiG-21s versus F-4s? Well, I would, I would say be careful saying very capable. So the MiG-21 does have some good handling at speeds other than supersonic, which is generally how it, it attacked. So they spent a lot of time making Mach 1.1, 1.2 runs on the U.S. formations, I guess is the best way to describe it. Because their goal was not to tangle with an F-4. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to shoot an F-105 down and more importantly, cause bombers to jettison their bombs, not make it to the target. They wanted to be a speed bump rather than tie people up in a dogfight. Then you get the other side of the equation, which is the MiG-17s, who absolutely were out there looking, spoiling for a fight. And their tactics were such that they wanted to draw the F-4s off into a dogfight with them because they felt they had the advantage there in a turning fight. So maybe, maybe I'm confusing the two aircraft, but yeah. I, I think you are a little bit because the, the 17 really was the airplane you did not want to turn with as an F-4 guy. Okay. Now, in the hands of a capable adversary, and discussions can always be made about the different uh, qualities of pilot training that the uh, North Vietnamese Air Force received and which, which pilots were better at maneuvering a MiG-21 slow speed, there were some of them that understood that. But the vast majority of them in, employed that as a very close control, ground control, intercept radar controlled fighter to go in there, shoot their infrared missiles and get the heck out of Dodge. Yeah, I th- maybe I'm not mistaken on what my thought process in the MiG-21 because, you know, of course, I'm no expert, but I understood the MiG-21 to be, you know, take off, intercept, always go fast. But if you had to be in a if you had to be in a real gunslinger situation, the MiG-21 could hold those high and keep turning at low speed and could surprise a more powerful aircraft. So, so that's the important thing to remember is that it was not like the MiG-17 that turned inside its own wingspan. It was kind of how it was sometimes described or, or more colorfully than that. Uh, but it, uh, 
it was a credible slow speed fighter when they understood how the Delta Wing worked and and they especially as you had later versions of the MiG-21 that were more equipped to be dogfighters and things like internal cannons were re- reintroduced, things like that. Then all of a sudden, there was an understanding of how to employ it. Um, but at, at the same time, it really was designed as a quick dash, point defense fighter, get out there, intercept the formation, shoot its missiles, and get home. Yeah, certainly then wouldn't be the one that would be doing the real dogfighting in Vietnam then. Correct. That, 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 the, the MiG-17 was the one that was meant to tie up all the formations. Well, that's interesting. Cool. See, I learned some. Well, uh, any I know we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot of aircraft. We've covered a lot of the challenges and stuff that you guys on the team have been working on behind the scenes to try to you know make this thing a reality. Uh, we've talked about some historical missions, maybe that could have some real potential. Man, I tell you, I was excited about uh, Israeli F fours when I was thinking about F fours. Kind of, I don't know, the colors seem cool and all that. Uh, and that's so close to that time frame. Uh, how about any tactical formations or employment methods that have any relevance? I guess that might even be like a theater or doctrine card kind of thing. But I know there were a lot of things that were tried in Vietnam from that perspective. And that's one of those slippery slopes that is really cool when you're the play testers and you can draft a card or you can draft a, a special rule and, and tee that up for Andy. But at the same time, a lot of those things don't make the cut of keeping it the the simple flow of blood red skies that we currently have because you can absolutely go down some amazing rabbit holes with theater and doctrine cards uh and and take it to some tactical levels and there's even been some discussion about how do we try to model the difference between the navy's loose deuce formation versus the air force still flying kind of a fingertip finger four kind of formation and and some of the tactical limitations you could lose your mind going through each one of those things. I think what we'll probably see is those will be things that the community will say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could do X? And then somebody will make a card or make a scenario with a special rule, and and you'll be able to do those things. But I don't think those kind of things will make the baseline cut. Clearly so much potential for things that could be done with <laughs> you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a never-ending litany of things that we – we all bring up inside some of these discussions and we start having to line through them and go, that's really cool. We just don't have the time to think about that because we gotta, we've got to make the game fun, playable, and somewhat representative of how aircraft actually fought. Well, this is exciting. I mean, you and I talk a lot, but this is the first time we've talked in any real great depth about you know, the kind of efforts you guys are putting in to making this thing a reality. And it's clear that you guys are thinking hard about all these things. It's really awesome. Well, I, I have to really put the credit where the credit is due the playtest team and and most everybody has has dealt with members of them in the in the blood red skies ready room ken roslin roger they are doing an amazing job uh we've got a couple other people that are that are the playtesters that are really helping us out by actually doing the grunt work of moving the airplanes around the board and and letting the good idea fairies as we kind of are (laughs) figure out uh what those concepts and, and what those ideas are uh but at and I, and I can't say enough, all those things have to meet Andy's standard and that hopefully here in the next couple months as we've played and, and tried some of these things, tried some of it at Adepticon, we played a couple games there at Coastal Con, that we tee this up and hopefully it's something that Andy thinks can go forward and can actually be 
a worthwhile addition to the Blood Red Sky system because we all have to be honest that it's his game. And if at the end of the day he looks at it and goes, wow, you've made jet combat really, really complicated. That doesn't sound very fun at all. I don't blame him if, if he said no. If he said, nope, not going to do Vietnam, not doing you know, Operation Rolling Thunder, not doing Operation Linebacker, um, then I'll just go and push my little resin F4s around by myself. But, <laughs> but it's one of those things. So let's fast forward. Unfortunately, we lost Chris. So I won't be able to ask him. He had a he had a bail tonight. But um, nice work. You bingoed him out. You even ran him out of gas. <laughs> yeah, we did go kind of long. This is a bit of a long one for us. Uh, let's fast forward. We've got now a rule set, a box set, whatever for Vietnam. What are you painting? What do you want to collect? I I ooh he uh, that's a tough one because as you know I've already ordered some stuff from AIM but it was such a shotgun blast of Vietnam aircraft because if you gave me my choice it would be Navy Marine Corps F8 Crusaders A4 Skyhawks F4 Phantoms nice um but I love the thud I I I'm sorry I know it's an Air Force airplane so it's sacrilege that I'm saying this. I I love the thud, although I'm probably going to, you know, gladly second my two thuds that I've ordered and send them down to you to be painted up. Um, but uh, it would have to be Navy Marine Corps aircraft first just because of my background. But there's there's so many cool things to do with thuds, with camo painted F-4s for the Air Force. Just a lot of neat aircraft there. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm stuck on Air Force uh, 105s and, and Air Force F-4s and they're, you know, it. it Reminds me of, I, I can't help but think of, you know, building an F-4 as a kid and, you know, an Air Force F-4 with the color uh, pattern that they had. I'd do that all day long on a box full of uh, F-4s and 105s. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I don't think the color palettes are going to be that challenging because everything was such a derivative of Southeast Asian camo. Right. So it's not like you're going to have uh, guys in Splinter and all these other different uh, camo patterns painted up. Uh, and the same thing for the for the Navy side. Everything's going to be kind of a light gloss gray. <laughs> I think but, the, the MiG-21 but will be fun, fun to paint, too, though. I, I just think they're cool looking. Yeah, a, yeah. A fairly absolutely. simple paint job if I did silver ones, but that I just think it's, an, it's a neat contrast, much the way I liked painting the MiGs in the uh, MiG Alley box. Yeah, I think the most diversity will come from MiG-17s, and if MiG-19s make it out there and and doing camouflage, uh, low-altitude paint schemes on the MiGs. But I think everybody else's paint schemes will probably be pretty uh, pretty vanilla, but it'll be cool to model the actual units, squadrons, aircraft that you uh, that you want to play. Oh, I'm thinking compared to what we push around now, an F-4 would be pretty darn big on the table, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's another question that keeps getting teed up, is what what is the point of a 1-200 F-4? Because it is pretty darn big. And I'm still waiting on mine to show up to kind of make the call for myself. But uh, but we know that Blood Red Skies is going to stay with one two hundred scale, but that's going to be a, a good sized chunk of resin. Not exactly a B seventeen or a B twenty nine, but it's not small. Yeah, without seeing one firsthand, uh, you know, it's hard for me to judge. But I I kind of feel like maybe I'm prejudiced to sticking with one to two hundred. I don't know. Maybe just because I want to. Not that I would do this in a game, but to be able to put it next to a Ju eighty seven and go, here's my F four. Here's a, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so we'll see once uh, once mine show up from AIM. Uh, we'll get a look at that and we can go. Oh my God, that's way too big. So who knows? All right. Well, we've made this one a long one. I hope that folks enjoy it. I hope that uh, some of the stuff we talked about with the aircraft and everything causes you to maybe do a little Google search, maybe check Netflix for those uh, those. Uh, documentaries maybe there's something out there to, to learn i want to go back and 
find out more about these F8s and these F104s. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. All right, cool. Well, uh, thanks for being with us tonight, folks. And, uh, man, I hope some of you that are listening are about to come say hi to us at the tables at Adepticon. That's by the time this goes out, we'll be real close to getting there. It's going to be great. We're going to have tables like crazy for different things. And that, that, uh, Malta table is going to be especially fun. So hope yeah, you see some, some listeners there. Yeah. Everybody come, uh, come out, hang out with us, drink some beer, roll some dice, move some airplanes around, uh, hopefully there'll be swag to give away, and uh, there'll be a lot of fun to be had. Just uh, just teeing up a big Malta game, or Stalingrad games, or Megali games, or if you say, "Hey, let's play test Vietnam," uh, I will hang my head in shame, and we can play test some Vietnam rules. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't. Uh, congratulations on the look of those uh, those hurricanes that you're having made. I, I just saw pictures of them; they look great. See, you were supposed to bring that up with Chris still online so he could make fun of me for having models painted, but it's one of those of uh, I knew I wasn't going to get there from here. So thanks to Trevor for painting up the uh, the commission of uh, Hurricanes so at least those Hurricanes will match my Spitfire Mark Vs that I've got. I think it's going to look pretty good. Yeah, I'm working on the final batch before Adepticon. I've got some JU-87s for Stalingrad that are uh, in process so I'll get yeah there i'm get behind there. it's no surprise but at least my uh, spitfires are close to the decal stage yeah that's cool all right well thanks everybody and uh we will talk to you all again very soon No pressure, you can start any time. <laughs> As he takes a deep breath and thinks about it. So I can start whenever I want? Can I? You sure? Are you sure? <laughs> I didn't know if we were recording yet. It's not like uh, our old system, right? Okay. <laughs>